Welcome to the GemServe CyberHacks podcast, where we continue our analysis of emerging cybersecurity challenges. Every once in a while, a brilliant piece of research and scientific expertise is combined with the truly inspired application of a new technology to fundamentally make our society a better and safer place to live. This is easily the case in respect to the project we're about to discuss, which combines world-class forensic expertise with computer science and mathematical excellence. I'm talking, of course, about the inspiring work of Professor Dame Sue Black and Dr. Brian Williams. The project is called H-Unique. The project has successfully trained artificial intelligence to identify the deep feature biometrics or uniqueness of hands and deploy it in the identification and prosecution of those suspected of serious criminal offences. Working in partnership with UK, US and international law enforcement, the H-Unique team has established a phenomenal track record with numerous offenders receiving significant custodial sentences. Combining forensic anthropology, anatomy and AI in this manner is shaping the future of modern policing, providing new tools and capabilities which are changing the way we think about the application of cutting-edge technology to tip the balance in the fight against serious crime. Let's meet the dedicated professionals that are making this possible. Hello and welcome, Sue and Brian. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. If I may turn to you first, Sue, in our previous conversation, we talked about the brief introduction to modern forensic anthropology, and you highlighted the case of uh, Dr. Buck Ruxton. I think it was in Lancaster in 1935. And in the tracking down of Ruxton, the services of Professor John Glaster Jr., could you talk a bit about why that case in particular is significant in terms of forensic anthropology, please? It was a, a very unusual case insofar it was a double murder and it brought together a large number of disciplines that had not come together previously. So Buck Ruxton, uh, who was a GP in Lancaster, murdered both his wife and his wife's maid. He was convinced that she was having extramarital affairs and he confronted her when she came home one night. We suspect the maid then came to intervene and that's why she lost her life as well. And in being a surgeon, he had an understanding of the human body. So he was faced with two dead bodies. And with his surgical instruments, he was able to dismember the body into different parts. So he hired a car and he drove up to Moffat, so over the border from England into Scotland. And as he was driving over a bridge onto a burn, he thought there's a really good place to throw these body parts into. But of course, body parts don't necessarily do what you always think they will. And so they got caught in the weeds at the side. And a woman walking across the bridge thought she could see a hand sticking out of the water. She called the police. The police arrived on their bicycles and they started to recover these body parts. And so they called the anatomist from Scotland and it was clear that what they had was a, as a double homicide. So the anatomists and the forensic pathologists worked together and they then started the construction of a human jigsaw. Didn't the spotlight shine on him after some analysis had been done because 
it was obvious that the perpetrator had had surgical training because it had been removed so expertly. It is true. They were concerned that these bodies had been dismembered with such skill that they were looking perhaps for a surgeon or a GP or a vet or somebody who knew that that sort of level of activity. But the bodies had also been wrapped in newspaper and the newspaper that they'd wrapped it in was a limited edition that was only printed around the Lancaster and Morecambe area in a, in a very short window of time. And that's what brought the police down across the border from Scotland into Lancaster. And so it was one of the first times where a series of sciences had come together to try to resolve a case. It was our first modern murder investigation in the UK. Fascinating. And is that where you see the instigation of the disciplines of forensic anthropology, anatomy and pathology in terms of public discourse. Would you say that was one of the sort of key milestones of the public becoming aware of the disciplines? Um, possibly not at that time. I think it was a one-off case and there was no discipline of forensic anthropology in the UK at that time. Of These were anatomists oh, of course. and the anatomists were looking at identification of the deceased. The pathologists are looking at what's the cause and the manner of death. So there's two slightly different questions being asked by the two disciplines. But forensic anthropology didn't really come into the UK's psyche until probably, gosh, it was probably around the 1990s, quite late. And certainly by the time that we were working in areas across the world, such as Kosovo, then we started to have that public awareness of what forensic anthropology was through through documentaries, through novels, through films. It started to gain its momentum really very, very recently. And in terms of the presentation in court today, you know, orientate us on how that fits into the criminal justice system and, and, and the sort of courtroom drama. So a scientist is by law allowed to give an opinion in court. And in court, if you're a witness, normally you have to have seen something or heard something. But an expert witness can come in and give their opinion. So the expectation is your scientist knows something that general members of the public would not be expected to know. And so therefore they're permitted to come into the courtroom to explain the science because the most important people in the courtroom are the jury, the members of the public. And our job is in terms of presenting the science to try to help them to come to a safe decision about what actually transpired in the nature of that crime. Now, in a courtroom, you are very much under the jurisdiction of the law. And a scientist in that environment is in an alien environment. And you can only answer the questions you're asked. So if the law teams don't ask you the right question, you can't offer your opinion. That's not allowed. You are there to only answer whatever it is that they ask you. And you might have this burning question that you say, why don't you just ask me this? And you can't do that. That's not permitted. So it's a very, it's a, you know, you feel suppressed in some ways, but it's also then in the UK, we have an adversarial legal system. System, which means that you come into the court either because you were, you were secured by the prosecution or you were secured by the defence. And one side will, will be very much of the genre that wants to show how much of an expert you are in a particular area so that your evidence carries that credibility for a jury. And the other side want to be able to pick holes in that. So as a, as a scientist, you go into court with a reputation and you may come out with an entirely different reputation and not one that you're terribly pleased with. 
If I can turn the conversation to the subject of hands, to pick up one of your quotes, I think, from published work elsewhere, uh, you made the point, I have my father's hands. And if we can just focus on inherited characteristics in that space, could you just provide us some background to where that area of research initiated and and talk us through some of the finer points in that area, please, Sue. There are two parts of our body that are exposed and usually in full view to, to everyone that we meet, and that's our face and our hands. And, you know, I look at my hands and there's no doubt my, my mother had the most delicate feminine hands and my father had hands that could span an octave and a half on the piano. And unfortunately, I didn't get my mother's delicate hands. I got my father's shovels. There, there's so much information gathered together anatomically in just that small part of your body. And when you look at some of the, the great artists, there are two areas where the artist was, was judged most frequently. And that was on the quality of the face that they produced and the quality of the hands. And sometimes when you look at these masters, the faces are beautiful and the hands, you think, oh, they didn't quite spend enough time on that. You can't quite see the detail. But Dürer was just amazing. And you look at his hands, particularly the praying hands, and you can see the veins and you can see the skin crease patterns and the anatomical detail that he observed was just phenomenal. I think it's worth pointing out that hands are as unique when studied in this level of detail as DNA. And in fact, I was amazed to read that hand analysis can differentiate between identical twins, whereas DNA struggles in that space. Is that, is that correct? The human hand is not the same on your right side as your left. So if anyone is in any doubt, look at the pattern of veins on the back of your right hand, the pattern of veins in your left hand, they won't be the same. Look at the pattern of skin creases you've got over each of your knuckles, they won't be the same on any finger. If your body is not symmetrical, so that you as a single person can't produce a mirror image of a hand on the other side, then it's a realistic expectation that no two people are going to produce the same hand. And we've certainly done some work um, quite some time ago now in identical twins. And the anatomical features that we see are as different in identical twins as they are in any two individuals. Mm-hmm. And that's because the features that you see in the hand anatomically form from different etiologies. And by that, I mean, if if you look at your hand, genetically, you can see it's mum or it's dad's hand because you've got that shape. But when you come into the anatomical features, the vein patterns that you produce are created by you as a fetus inside your mum in response to your own body's physiology and the physiology of your mum's uterus that you're occupying for nine months. Um Can we talk about some of the early work in cases and the key challenges with hand identification in terms of preparing material to support criminal investigation and potentially subsequent prosecution, of course? I know you have a partnership with the College of Policing, the National Crime Agency, and I believe the University of Dundee. Can you talk a bit about the early casework and how the partnership came about with law enforcement? Yeah, so so the first case we did was 2006, and all we had was an image, a near-infrared image. And we were able to compare vein patterns. And anatomically, we know that superficial vein patterns are variable 
between any two individuals. So being able to compare the images allowed us to go into court to say where there were similarities and differences. And that really was the start of the work that we did with the police, was being issued with a set of images to say, can you compare these with our suspect? And give us your opinion on whether you can exclude the suspect, because that's something we can do with 100% accuracy, is to say the anatomy is not the same in these two hands. It can't be the same person. But if the anatomy is the same, what level of confidence do we have in that comparison? And so we are presented with a messy set of image data that says, can you take whatever you can see in this image And if there is something useful, compare it to a set of images that are normally taken by a police officer in a custody suite and try to compare the two. So it is a straightforward, almost like that children's game that you used to play of spot the difference between two photographs. It's about saying, where are the anatomical similarities? Where are the anatomical differences? And how can we explain those similarities and differences? And how confident are we that they could be coming from the same individual? What was the reaction? You know, how did the CPS react to the presentation of evidence like that? You know, was it, did you have to convince the skeptics in that space? Or, you know, can you talk us through that journey a little bit? Often, what you will find with police is that they are faced in an investigation with a problem. And the problem is case-based. The police have come to you. You then create your report and the police will then take that report to either the CPS or the Procurator Fiscal if you're in Scotland, whichever authority it is. And that legal source has to decide whether the evidence that we've provided in the report is going to be deemed acceptable by the court. Has it been done in such a way that is impartial? Can we let it safely into the courtroom? Because we've got to remember that you are innocent until you are proven guilty. And it's the judge's responsibility to ensure that the evidence that is allowed into their courtroom is safe. So the police may think, Yep, I I want to use this because this sounds really sexy and cool. The CPS will say, actually, it looks as if there's, there's science behind this. That's okay. So they'll put it forward. And then the judge is the final gatekeeper. And in the case we talked about, it was the first time that this kind of evidence had come into a courtroom in the UK. And the judge then called a voir dire, which means they send the jury out and the judge questions the witnesses and both legal teams to make the decision on whether this is a safe piece of evidence to go before the jury. And on the basis of anatomical understanding and knowledge, the judge made the decision that our evidence would be heard. And it was the first time anatomical information for identification from the hand was heard in a UK court. Can you talk to us about how the capture and biometrics and biometrics function in that regulatory framework and and talk about some of your experiences there working with the biometrics commissioner. It's really important. So any aspect of research that you're going to be involved in, you have to be very clear about the ethics processes and procedures that you're going to observe. And any research grant, any funder who is going to fund your research will want to see what is your ethics 
process? How are you going to ensure that the information that you collect, so data collection, is addressed in a way that meets the the necessary legislation associated with data, but also that it reaches a, a level of ethical and moral responsibility? Because at the end of the day in H-Unique, what we're asking people to do is to photograph their hands for us. And we are fundamentally saying we think you can be identified from your hands. So there is a real responsibility that is placed on us that we take very seriously, that when these images are transferred to us, that they are stripped of any means of our ability to relate those images to a person. Of course. It's why we also maintain the sterile corridor between our research work and police involvement Mm -hmm. is that our images are for research and they mustn't then pass over to the police, for example. That would be totally inappropriate. You've spoken before about your frustration with how the forensic discipline is portrayed in popular fiction. Is public perception a real challenge there? Or, or people tend to understand how the serious nature of the science is conducted day to day? Or does the spectre of popular fiction interfere with the work in any way? Or how, how do you manage that kind of public perception? You know, there is a fear that scientists in the courtroom can come across very dull and can come across as almost incomprehensible. And that's what's important for a forensic scientist is to be able to put what you do into very simple language. And that's no disrespect to the public, Mm. but much of the public haven't done any science studies since they were at school. So we have to be fairly simple in terms of our language, but not in any way dumb down the science. And that sort of tension between getting the level right so that the public understands it but that we also manage their expectations, which are often fairly unrealistic because they've been watching CSI Miami or whatever it may be. And, you know, you can get a a DNA sample back from a single cell that was found on the back of somebody's jacket 12 months after a murder happened and they've been in the river. You know, those sorts of things aren't realistic. Can we just talk about the birth of the collaboration there with AI, deep learning, just give us this orientate us on how that collaboration came about. The anatomist working with AI specialists and, and deep learning computational scientists. And then you throw the National Crime Agency and the College of Policing into the into the um, the partnership. It sounds like a really heady mix. I'm the anatomist and I know what I want to be able to do to help to solve the crime. So I've got the front end of it. I've got the back end of it, but what I haven't got is the scientific knowledge in the area that is the middle of that sandwich. And that's where I am totally reliant on people like Brian and the rest of the team who are the experts in their area. Half the time, I don't understand what it is that they're saying to me or what they write in the papers, but I trust them implicitly. And they will know that when we have our meetings and our team meetings, I get ridiculously excited, a bit like an eight-year-old on our birthday party, (laughs) when suddenly they've cracked a bit of the science that I can now understand and know how to take it forward into our problem. They're the ones who can unlock the scientific boxes and make it happen. Wonderful. Well, I've got some statistics here from from some of your published work in in terms of the track record of the the programme and its partnership with law enforcement, and it's phenomenal. 28 life sentences, over 300 years of custody time, 
and an 82% change of offender plea. That's the track record so far. It speaks for itself. Just in terms of the wider cooperation, are there plans for an international effort in respect to the programme and extension? I know you've done some work with overseas law enforcement agencies. Can you talk to us a little bit about the sort of international collaborative uh, aspects of the work? The, the crime that we're investigating is a global crime. And because the sharing of images, it's not halted in any way by country borders. So every police force in every country is facing the same problems as our own police forces with the quantity of this digital material and the ability to link offender and suspect. So we have assisted a number of police forces from around the world. And in fact, this morning, I have a request coming in from a police force that are looking to set up the kinds of things that we're doing, saying, how do we train people to be able to do the sort of work that you're doing? Now, my hope is that we won't need to train the likes of me in other countries, because the H Unique project will be the one that will provide the solution that says, here's the likelihood of the the similarity between your two images, the anatomical features in your two images. So it should make it easier for cross-border collaboration. And there's a real willingness internationally to work together because this is such an enormous crime. Where do you see the work two years from now? Is that the focus, the international collaborative aspects or... So, so there are two aspects to it. The first one is by the end of the project, what we want to have is the ability to know that we can extract anatomical features from the human hand through AI, that we've got a mechanism whereby we can compare that pattern that we've extracted and compare it across millions of images that are held in databases and perhaps link cases that we've not been able to do in the past. In doing that, we want to have a greater understanding of just how unique is the human hand so that if we find this vein pattern in our statistical analysis of it, what are the chances of somebody else having that vein pattern? And it's only when you have a large data set that can be analysed through automatic means, because it's simply not possible for a person to do it, that you can get into that space that allows you to work at volume. And it's that volume that brings you the specificity of just how unique. Is it unique or is it not unique, the hand? I'm holding out for the fact that the human hand is unique. Well, the track record speaks for itself. It's amazing work. Um, Thank you, Sue. I'm going to turn to Brian now, who's been um, listening patiently. Thank you so much, Brian, to focus on perhaps some of the biometric issues of the work, um, the difference in how images are captured, how automation is helping you deal with uh, the sheer scale of of, uh, images that you receive. Can you just talk to us a bit, Brian, about the emergence of superficial vein patterns as a biometric and how your image capture differs from perhaps security systems and things that people may be more familiar with? Yes, so uh, superficial vein patterns themselves um, and the uniqueness of vein patterns has been understood for over 100 years. What we're trying to do now is to automate that. So we have several different modalities that we're collecting. So from the general public, we're collecting color photographs, which is very similar to the type of evidence that you might get in real life. But in addition to that, we're also collecting infrared imaging, which is very often used in commercial systems for 
taking payments or for building access that use the vein patterns on the hand or even in the fingers. The key nicety that they have in their world is that they have a very rigid and robust system. So you can collect really perfect quality image information every single time. But when you take that from security biometrics to forensics, you have much less control over the type of information that you can collect over the detail. So what you have to do is develop your method to be as robust as possible. Hence the need really to capture the different modalities that we're doing in order to train our algorithms to recognize them. And that automation and digital image capture and the, the introduction of I've got the acronym here, DODN, for the AI. Can we just talk about how the AI works in that space, how the algorithms are trained? How does that process get started? You know, Where do you start from in training an AI in, in deep feature recognition? Well, there's several different approaches and several different classifications of model, of architecture, of AI. So in this project, in this research, what we've got is a very specific agenda that we want to follow and that we want to base it on what we know from anatomy. So we want to focus on the finger knuckles. We want to focus on the vein patterns. And what we want to do is demonstrate uniqueness or investigate uniqueness or develop a biometric that's based on the variability of those features exactly, as opposed to an abstract feature vector. So we're focusing on the individual potential biometric traits, like the vein patterns, the skin creases. So DODN that you mentioned, uh, that stands for our Deep Oriented Distance Network. So this is, a, this is a method that we're actually, uh, we're in the process of publishing right now. Our goal here is to be able to extract the vein patterns ultimately from color photographs of the hand. So the reason that we use infrared at all is that the vein patterns are so much easier to see in infrared images. But if you were to look at evidence or evidence collections, you won't find too many infrared images in there. So that it's important to be ready for infrared images, but in reality, we need to be able to work with color photographs. And in terms of using the data sets and the training, how do you train your AI? Is it cross-comparison of images? How do you know when you've reached a significant amount of images to provide a good result? Fundamentally, you are right. It is effectively cross-comparison of imaging data. So you've got a couple of types of approach that you can take more recently. I think probably everybody has heard about deep learning. So there's a sub-branch of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And these days, if we're talking about training, particularly relating to imaging, that's probably what we're talking about. What we do on this project is we're looking for the individual regions. Our job in the past used to be we'll tell the computer the details of what it's looking for. We'll tell it the properties. So we may say, okay, a vein is a kind of blue, long, cylindrical thing. So go and find all of these bits of an image. Okay. But that obviously has limitations. So when it comes to training, well, these days we do more of a hybrid approach. But the fundamental basics of this are that our job becomes, instead of telling the computer what to look for in an image, we're telling it how it should learn for itself. So at base, what we can do, we can take some extracted vein patterns, which mark out exactly where these vein patterns are on each of the images that we have. And then we can use those to give to the computer and say, look, I'm not going to tell you the properties of it necessarily. I'm going to give you a load of examples 
and your task is to learn for yourself what a vein pattern looks like. I have to. I mean, it's fascinating, Brian. Thank you. I have to ask: Were there any unexpected insights that, that arose during your research during that training? What was the most surprising aspect? Is probably a better way to phrase the question. But we had an interesting surprise only on Friday, actually. So this is one of our. I haven't discussed this with Sue actually, so maybe she has a comment. Um, <laughs> but we were investigating the potential of knuckle creases. So we've had some really nice success with uh, using knuckles as a biometric. We've got some really great results demonstrating that you can identify people to varying degrees of accuracy using individual knuckles or in a holistic way using all of the knuckles. But what we found that we did not expect is that if you look at individual knuckles, if you really zoom into them, you can tell whether you're looking at the left or the right hand. Not to an amazing degree of accuracy, but you can tell. Wow, that's amazing. Either yourself or Sue, talk us through knuckle-based identification and the significance of knuckles. You talk about you know the significance of major, minor, and base deep features in knuckle recognition. Could you just orientate us on what you're using in knuckles to provide that level of um, certainty, if you like, and how it actually works, how it fits together? So, so the knuckle creases form when the joint is formed and the joint forms when you're a fetus inside your mum. And it's a bit like a, a great big fingerprint and your fingerprints form in much the same way. They, they are largely as a result of the environment in which you are growing and developing, which is why the fingerprints are different on, on each of our fingers. And when you look at the skin creases, if you look at a newborn baby's, for example, there is a basic pattern. But as your fingers get bigger and as you get towards maturity, then certainly by the time you're in your, your teens, we suspect, we don't know yet, that the pattern is probably set. And there is, there are different levels of information within that pattern. So there is a fairly extensive pattern of deep creasing that you can see even when the images are really of relatively poor quality. So the quality of our images that we're receiving in police investigations are far superior to what they were even 10 years ago. Amazing. You can get down into the real minutiae, just the same as you have in a fingerprint. Now, what we don't know yet is whether the, the fine crease levels and the, the more coarse crease levels, do they change over time? We don't know. What we do know is that the knuckle itself can change to a certain extent depending upon occupation. So if you're a bricklayer, you know, you're probably going to have calluses. And once you start to get calluses over those knuckle creases, you start to lose them. Wow. So it's the thing about the identification of the human is that because we're a biological construct, we never stay the same. So we are actually never identical at any two points in time as an individual because we do change. Wow. And we need to take account of how much change is acceptable and how much change is actually telling us something is different. I wanted to talk about automated knuckle localization, picking up some of the points from your research papers. I'm thinking you know, if you were presented by a potential suspect's image of knuckles, how do you go about identifying a particular subject from that image? And what's the process in getting to a high degree of probability that the knuckles that you've been sent on a hand from an, an internet image is actually a suspect? So you have to know what you're looking at. So what you would do with knuckles is you extract the features, as Sue was mentioning earlier, on lots of different levels. So you extract the explicit pattern of the knuckle valleys. 
the overall properties. So you do this separately by running the same algorithm on both images. And what you end up with is some representations that are hopefully comparable. And then you compare those representations. And it's often, a, it's, well, it's a question of how you actually are going to compare those representations. So one thing we're working on at the moment is graph matching. So if, if you imagine you have like, um, you know, you have a tree structure or you have, if you're looking at the A to Z and you have a map of the ropes, that can look very much like some knuckle creases. And what you need to be able to do is to take two graphs from, from different things and to be able to compare those. And there's so many different ways that you can actually do it on so many different levels. Did I read that you're talking about in certain areas, rank one accuracy is a term that you use and match rates in the sort of 93 to 95% bracket? Mm -hmm. That seems to me a really excellent you know, level of, of, uh, of match rate. Yep, so this is, I think this paper, the, the one talking about anuchal creases. So by rank one accuracy, what we mean is that we're identifying the correct person on the first go. So is the most likely match. So when it comes to looking at knuckle creases, we're looking at three types of knuckle, going from near the fingernail down to the, down to the palm area. We're looking at the minor knuckles, the major knuckles, and the base knuckles at the end of the finger. So by themselves, the major knuckles tend to be pretty good as a biometric trait. You can identify people pretty well based on just a single one of those. Then is the minor knuckles, and then the base knuckles are really not that great, but they do offer something. So it's when we take these free knuckle types, we take them from all four fingers. If that information is available, we can get uh, above 95% accuracy on some data sets. We can get up to 100% accuracy. Wow, that's amazing. Just to move on then to talk about some future applications. My question to both of you is, what's the next step for this type of AI in biometrics and identification? You know, how far are we from sort of real-time or near-real-time alerts in respect of hand-knuckle-based identification? In, in terms of the potential of biometrics, you've got the more the higher sensitivity that we can get using artificial intelligence. But if, if we consider the example we heard earlier, distinguishing left and right um, knuckles, you know, there's no as far as I know it, there's no scientific background to say that you should be able to do that. And that's the really, really key point, is that the biometrics needs to be developed as robustly and scientifically as possible before it gets rolled out. So for me, the next step, the most important next step... To a practical application, so yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, it's to, it's to verify what you're doing and that what you're doing actually has a solid baseline. It has a solid background and it's meaningful. The second part of that question then, where are the next steps in developing sort of, if you had systems that could pick up images, you know, say at airports, you know, um, football matches, you know, things like that, how far do you think we are from having the capability to produce near-time alerts in terms of images that were captured? Is it, notwithstanding the obviously the strict regulatory framework that need to be in place to support that kind of capability, is that too far of a leap there, Brian? I think the regulatory framework itself is the key question. I mean, you could actually come along now and you could say, okay, I have this algorithm. Um, I've tested it on so many people. Of course. Let's implement it right now. And you could do that. Well, But as I said, I really hope that um, that is not tomorrow. 
Fascinating. We've covered the future, as you see it, and that's, that was my last talking point for the, for the session today. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating uh, to, to walk us through your research. I look forward to speaking to you again at some point. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.